All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let's start reading in verse number 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity now to just look at your word. And I pray, Father, for the filling of the Holy Spirit uh, for me as I try to teach, and Lord, for all of us as we listen and hear uh, what you have for us today. Uh, Lord God, as we look at this simple summary of the gospel, Lord, I always feel so inadequate when I try to just explain the gospel. And I pray today that, uh, Father, you would just uh, take the words that are spoken here and apply them to hearts. Lord, if there's anybody here who's wondering about this, if there's anybody here who does not know for certain about their relationship with you, I pray that nothing that I would say would hinder that. I pray, Lord, I would not confuse the issue in any way. I pray it would be clear. And I pray the Holy Spirit would take these words and just apply them. And Lord, if there's anybody who needs to be saved, will they be saved today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians for quite a while now, and we've spent a lot of time talking about various issues that confronted the church uh, at Corinth. Paul has been painstakingly answering a bunch of questions that had been asked of him. And he's also been dealing with some issues that maybe they hadn't asked questions about, but They had reached his ears about problems that were taking place in the church at Corinth. I'm sure everybody who's been through most of this series with us would agree that there have been some difficult issues that have been included in that particular topic. But as we come to the end of the book now, and we are coming to the end of the book now, as we come to the end, uh, those difficult issues are behind us. Can I get an amen on that? Uh, All the hard stuff is behind us now, and it's smooth sailing. As we go now to the end of the book of 1 Corinthians. And we come now to chapter 15, which is really an extremely important chapter in our Bible. And, and I, would, I, would, I would recommend to you that you read it over and over and over and over again. 1 Corinthians 15 is just that important. One person said chapters in the Bible do not compete for importance. But no chapter is more important than 1 Corinthians 15. And I would agree with that. We cannot, we're on dangerous ground when we start saying that something in the Bible is more important than anything else because all scripture is given by inspiration of God, right? Amen? It's all profitable. And yet, if we were to try that little exercise, this chapter would bubble to the top somewhere. It's often referred to as the resurrection chapter because its primary topic is the resurrection. We didn't read far enough to really get into the meat of that particular part of it, but we'll get there in ensuing weeks. 
And uh, it, it talks all about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's probable that Paul is even here, still answering some questions. They may have asked some questions about the resurrection that he's dealing with even here. They may have asked, for example, why believe in the resurrection? Because he seems to answer that question here. They may have asked, how is the resurrection achieved? And he gives some very interesting uh, information about that. And they, they may have even asked, what is the nature of a resurrected body? What is our body going to be like? Don't you, haven't you ever wondered that? What kind of a body are we going to have? Am I going to be as spectacularly good looking when I get to heaven <laughs> as I am now? Don't you ever wonder things like that? Well, he talks about that as well. This is an important chapter. And Lord willing, we're going to have to take a few weeks, I think, to wade through all of the good information that we have here in chapter 15. I think we could probably talk about it for the rest of our lives and never plumb the depths of 1 Corinthians 15. Well, today I want to just kind of introduce the chapter, and we're just going to look at the first 11 verses that we read, because Paul here introduces this whole subject with a very powerful argument. Paul starts off this chapter by saying that even though he had spent a bunch of time in the beginning of the book talking about division in the church, you remember that? That's been a long time ago, but we talked about that. The first few chapters of the book are all about division and the problems that they were having with division. He said, even though he had addressed that and spent some time on that, he said, you know, that's not the most important thing for you Corinthians to be thinking about. He said, even though he had spent some time talking about purity in the church, you know, chapter five, he talked about the fellow that had his, what was it, his mother's, I can't remember. It was, it was a, incorrect relationship. He had spent some time in chapter 5 talking about that and addressing purity issues in the church and church discipline and all those things. He said, you know, all that was important, but that's not the most important thing. He says, you know, even though uh, he'd spent a lot of time in chapter 6 talking about our relationship with the world, our testimony before the world. I don't remember, I don't know if you remember chapter 6, but he spent some time talking about how Christians ought to make, ought not to take other Christians to court. For some reason, I can't talk this morning. I don't know why that is. My, my tongue's not working. I have to pray for that. But uh, anyway, you're not supposed to take other Christians to court. And he said, even though that, that matter is important, it's not the most important. Our testimony before the world is important, but it's, it's not the most important. In chapter 7 and following, he'd spent a whole bunch of time talking about family relationships, husbands and wives and divorce and remarriage and things like that. He said, that's important. Family's important. But he said, that's not the most important thing. We got into chapters 11 through 14 and we got into some really deep waters talking about things that had to do with the worship, the actual way we gather together, what we do in worship. Brother Rusty mentioned our worship services and it is important that this church always maintain an attitude of worship. And he said, uh, you know, he had talked about things like how people dress in the worship services with the head coverings issue. He talked about proper behavior around the Lord's table. Very important. We read that topic or that passage a lot on Sunday mornings, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 dealing with the Lord's table. He said all that stuff is important and how we behave in the Lord's house is important, but it's not the most important thing. Chapters 12 through 14, he had spent some time talking about spiritual gifts. That's important. He said it's important to remember that you all have a gift. It's important to remember that the Holy Spirit has given you that gift. It's important to remember that he has given you that gift for the good of the local church. All these things are important, but it's not the most important. He even says, You know, that chapter 13, where he talks about the preeminence of love, the primacy of love, that everything we do, how we exercise our spiritual gifts, and I think it even goes beyond that, everything that we do ought to be done in an attitude of love. He said that's important, but it's not the most important thing. You see, here in chapter 15, I believe Paul tells us what is the most important thing. 
And I think he's saying it in such a way as to say that everything else we've talked about so far is trivial compared to this. The most important thing. Look at verses 3 through 5. 3 through 5. I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen. I'm going to stop right there. We'll talk about who he was seen by in a future message. But right now we'll just stop with that. He was seen. You know if you're writing your Bibles. And I encourage you to do so. You ought to underline that little phrase. In that verse. First of all. First of all. That little phrase is a translation of a Greek word which means literally first. It's the Greek word protos, which obviously you you can think of some words that have been derived from that. It means first, it means prominent, it means best, it means most important. Most places in the Bible where that word is translated, it's translated simply with with our English word first. For example, Matthew 5.24, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way first. Be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Matthew 6.33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. I delivered unto you first that which I also received. Now there's a couple of ways we could interpret that first. Paul is talking about the gospel here. He is summarizing the gospel here and he is saying that the gospel is first in order or in Chronology. It was the very first message he had preached to the Corinthians. Isn't that what he said? The very first thing I told you was this. So chronologically, it is first. And it's the very first message all of us need to hear, is it not? There is no message. No message, which we really even can hear until you have heard that. It wouldn't do me any good to stand up here and preach to you about loving one another if we didn't have that foundation. Without the gospel, without understanding that, There's no point in talking about anything else. Does no good to talk about some of these other things he's discussed. And that's what he's saying here. No good to talk about church discipline or division or spiritual gifts or any other topic from scripture. If we don't first have this thing down. I delivered unto you, first of all, the gospel is the first message one must hear and the first message one must accept. And so, uh, you know, this morning, if you find yourself struggling with the teachings of the Bible, If you find yourself struggling with other aspects of the word of God and wondering about it, maybe you need to ask yourself, have I gotten that first part down? Have I accepted that first truth? It's the first message we must hear. The first message we must accept. But I think Paul is also saying here that the gospel is first, not only in order of chronology, it's not the first thing we must hear. I think he's also talking about the fact that it's first in order of priority and first in order of focus. Maybe that's a better word, focus. Consider how some other translations handled this particular verse. The English Standard Version says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So the, so the New American Standard and the NIV. The NIV says, I, what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. And so it's first in priority, first in importance, as well as the very first chronologically that we need to hear. In simpler terms, we might say that there is nothing Nothing, 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 nothing more important than this particular message. First of all, of first importance. Warren Wiersbe said the gospel is the most important message that the church ever proclaims. And so what is this truth that is of first importance? Well, it's the truth that we just read in verses 2 through 5. And so I want to spend some time unpacking 
those few verses this morning. And we won't be very long, just a few very simple truths that you've heard before. But I think it's vital that we understand this message, which is of first importance. You know, when we're witnessing to somebody, we have various groupings of verses that we sometimes use to share the gospel with somebody else. I like one called the Romans Road. And many of you have heard the Romans Road. I've shared the Romans Road with quite a few of you here. It's just a grouping of verses that is an attempt to summarize the gospel to make it easier for somebody else to understand. The Romans Road is just several verses out of Romans. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, all of sin to come short of the glory of God. Teaches us that we're, we're all sinners. Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. Because we're all sinners, we're lost. I mean, these are fundamental, simple truths. But we can use these verses from Romans. Romans 5, 8, God commended his love toward us, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. When Jesus died on the cross, he died in our place. So, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord should be saved. Uh, that, that's the Romans wrote. There, there's all kinds of things. Sometimes in our bulletin, we'll put one called the ABCs of salvation. Which is another. Well, what we have here, I think, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is the very first such summary of the gospel. I think it's the very first apostolic summary of the gospel that we have. And I think it may be the clearest presentation of the gospel that is found anywhere in the Bible. Here it is. Let me read it to you again. I deliver it to you first of all, that which I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried... He rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and he was seen. As I consider these truths, I I thought we'd just divide it up and just look at a couple of the words that jump out at us. And the first one that jumps out at me is the word Christ. Christ. Christ died for our sins. I think we need to start right with that very first word, because the fact is, folks, we're not talking about just a normal person, are we? We're talking about... Christ. We're not talking about somebody who's just a great teacher or a moral leader or someone who's a wonderful example. That's what all the other religions will tell you about Jesus Christ. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something completely different. Paul didn't use his name Jesus. He could have said that. He could have said Jesus died for your sins. He used his title Christ, which refers to the fact he's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the son of God. And it is he with whom we have to do. And so it's important that we think about Christ. If, I believe, when someone is trying to consider the claims of the gospel, they would just spend some time thinking about that person. Thinking about the person who is the center of the whole story. I think it would be much easier for them to accept. And I think they'd be much more likely to fall on their face in praise and adoration before him. Because when we get a glimpse of Jesus Christ, how do we not? How do we not want to accept him? I read in the New Testament where one day Peter and the other disciples were fishing. This was after his crucifixion. This was after his resurrection. And they were out in the boat on the Sea of Galilee fishing. And Jesus stood on the shore and he called out to them. And the story seems to indicate that Peter went squinting through the fog. He couldn't quite see who was on the shore. He knew somebody was there. He was hauling him. He couldn't see who it was. And John, who must have had better eyesight. You can can go along with that, can't you, brother, right? John, who must have had better eyesight. Saw who it was. And he tapped Peter on the shoulder and he said, it's the Lord. And Peter's immediate response, didn't hesitate at all, jumped into the water, swam to the shore and fell at his feet. You see, that's the response. If we get a glimpse of who this is. If we get a glimpse of the fact that we're talking about Jesus Christ, that's the reaction we'll have. I read also where there was a time after the resurrection when the disciples were gathered in an upper room and Thomas was not with them. 
You've heard this story many, many times. Thomas wasn't there. Jesus appeared in their midst and spoke with them. And they were all excited, as obviously we would be. They were all excited. And they went to Thomas afterwards and they said, hey, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas said, I don't believe a word of that. Thomas said, I'm a, I'm a rational kind of guy. He said, I've got to be able to see it with my own eyes or I'm not going to believe it. He said, okay, if I can put my fingers in his prints of his nails in his hands, if I can take my hand and shove it into the wound in his side, all right, I'll believe it. But barring that, no. Of course, you know the story. You know that a week later, they were gathered together again. And by the way, just as an aside, I've heard it tongue-in-cheek said that uh, Thomas doubted because he skipped church. And you know, there's some truth in that. There is some truth in that. Anyway, a week later, they're gathered together. There they all are. This time, Thomas is with them. Jesus appears in their midst. And Jesus doesn't say anything to anybody else before he looks at Thomas and he says, Thomas, buddy, come here. He says, look here. Put your finger here. He says, look here. Put your hand here. And do you know that Thomas didn't do any of those things? Thomas fell on his knees before the Lord and he said, My Lord and my God. Because you see, when we get a glimpse of who we're dealing with, that's the response. We're talking about Christ, the Son of God. That's who we're talking about. Christ died for our sins. And then that brings us to that second part. Christ died. Meditate on that for a minute and see if that, how you can get your brain around that. We're talking here about Christ. We're talking about the anointed one. We're talking about the Messiah. We're talking about the very son of God. And the Bible says Christ died. How is that even possible? How can we get our mind around that? How can Christ die? Christ died. In our systematic theology classes on Wednesday evening, our leadership training institute, we've been talking about some very difficult and deep subjects. We've been discussing Christology, the doctrine of Christ. We've been talking about who this person was and is. And we have concluded without any hesitation that Jesus Christ, although he was every bit as much a man as if he had never been God, was also and at the same time every bit as much God as if he'd never been man. Can you get your brain around that? I, I struggle. It's hard. This is, these are difficult topics. We have concluded that he was 100% God at the same time he was 100% man. There was never a man like Jesus. There's never been anybody even remotely like him. And Jesus Christ, this man, died. Christ died. And not only has there never been a man like Jesus, there has never been a man who died like Jesus. My sister, who now lives in Florida, when we were kids and attended this church together, she used to sing a song in this church. It was called, Who Killed Jesus? I love that song. I'd kind of like to hear her sing it again. However, it's theologically incorrect. And so musicians don't go out of here this morning and say, hey, the preacher likes that song, Who Killed Jesus? I'd like to sing that because I don't want you singing it here. It's not theologically correct because nobody killed Jesus. The very question posed in the title is incorrect. He simply chose to die. And that's the amazing part about it all. Something that no other man before or since could have or would have done. Jesus stood before Pilate one day. And Pilate, in frustration, said to him, Don't you know I have the power to kill you or to keep you alive? And Jesus said, amazingly, he said, No, no, no. He said, You could have no power at all over me, except it were given to you from above. That's an amazing claim. But it was true. It was true. 
One day Jesus was describing his upcoming crucifixion to his disciples and he reminded them of this key truth. He said, you know what? Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up. Nobody killed Jesus. It's so important. Jesus was crucified on a cross between two other criminals, thieves, both of them on crosses on either side of him. Much has been written about death by crucifixion and the gruesome and lingering death that ensued from that method of execution. You've read the story. You know that the legs of the thieves on either side of Jesus were broken in order to hasten their deaths. Because crucifixion is lingering. Sometimes it took days for people to finally die. And of course it's natural for a person to hold out, to fight, to live until the very end. But Jesus' legs weren't broken. Jesus' legs weren't broken because Jesus on the cross simply died. He looked up to heaven and he said, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then in one of the most amazing verses in the Bible, it says he gave up the ghost. He died. How did he do that? Can you do that? Could you do that, Brother Jim? Could you just sit there right now and say, I think I'll die now? There's never been a man like Jesus. No one ever lived like him. No one ever died like him. But that's how Jesus died. And he did so as a demonstration of the fact it was his choice. He chose to die. He wasn't executed by men. He wasn't killed by men. Nobody did anything to Jesus he did not want them to do. It was his choice. He chose to die. That's amazing. I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Christ died. And if we stopped right there, we'd have enough to just, just say this is an astonishing story, but it, it goes on. Christ died for our sins. For our sins. Now let's pause here just for a moment. I want you to notice something. There's four words in this gospel summary which are key words. Those are the words died, buried, rose, and seen. Christ died for our sin. He was buried. He rose. He was seen by a whole raft of people. And those four words are the facts upon which the gospel is based. They are historical facts upon which our faith rests. And it's important to remember, is it not, that our faith is not built on myths or legends. It's built on historical fact. And there is as much evidence for those four words, those four truths, historical evidence of their uh, of their factuality. There is as much evidence of that as there is of anything else in history. Maybe of all else in history added together, I don't know. So those four words are the facts. But whereas died, buried, rose, and seen are the facts of the gospel, that little phrase, for our sins, that explains the why. That explains the theology of it. Christ died. Why? For our sins. For our sins. Warren Wiersbe says that many people were crucified during those days, but only one died for our sins. This coming Tuesday is a big day. This coming Tuesday is election day in America. And oh, how I hope every single one of you, if you have not already voted, I hope that you're going to go to the polls and vote this coming Tuesday. Christians are to be good citizens. In America, that means Christians vote. You know, at times like this, we get patriotic, don't we? Everybody talks about their country. We think more about our country, perhaps more at times like this. Then we do it other times during the year when it's not every 30 seconds on the television. Some commercial talking about it. Patriotism is a good thing. 
One of my favorite holidays, at least of the patriotic sort, is Memorial Day. It's a day when we remember those who died. When we remember those who gave their lives that we maintain, we might maintain the lifestyle and the freedom that we enjoy in this country. We remember those, we honor those, we revere those, and we love those who died for us. I love that holiday. But I hope this doesn't offend you when I say this. But it's the truth. Their sacrifice is nothing compared to the sacrifice that Jesus gave. You see, the patriot died for his people, his friends, his family, his country, his own. He did not and would not die for his enemies. Not so with Jesus. Jesus died for those who spit on him. Jesus died for those who pulled the beard out of his face. Jesus died for those who whipped his back bloody. Who nailed him to a cross. Shoved a spear through his side. Jesus died for those that the Bible says were his enemies. Those who were in no way seeking him. Who wanted nothing to do with him. Those are the ones Jesus died for. Yes, when Jesus died, he died for our sins. He died for us. He died for me. He died for you. That little phrase, Christ died for our sins, simply means he died on the behalf of our sins or in the place of our sins. It was a reference to the vicarious substitutionary atonement. He died to pay the penalty for my sins, your sins, all of our sins. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45 says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. First John chapter 4 and verse 10, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Big word means satisfaction of our sins. We read it just last week during communion, Isaiah chapter 53, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. That song my sister used to sing, that theologically incorrect song, it, did, it contained another line. And this line was more theologically sound. It said, my sins demanded hell. On him, the judgment fell. Christ died for our sins. I was talking with someone recently about these things. I was sharing the Romans Road with somebody, and I was talking about this. And as I got to this particular part, I, I said something that I oftentimes do, and I've said it from the pulpit. You've heard me say it. I said, you know, if he had been the only one who needed to be saved, Jesus still would have come and lived and died on the cross for you. He did it for you. While he was on the cross, you were on his mind, the songwriter said. And as I got to that particular part, this person, the tears welled up in their eyes because they got it. They understood it. Christ died for me. Christ died for our sins. Well, that's as far as I'm going to go this morning. And we'll, we'll pick this up next week. There's just lots more to talk about here. Of course, the story didn't stop with Christ dying for our sins. Even this gospel summary doesn't stop there, does it? He was buried he rose again, and he was seen. And we'll talk about that more. For now, let me just say he was buried to prove he was dead. 
You know, there's some folks who don't think he was really dead who come up with elaborate schemes to explain that away. He was buried because he was dead. He rose to prove that he bought, died voluntarily for our sins, had won the victory over death and sin. We'll talk about all those wonderful truths in the next coming week. But before we finish today, and I know we're a little longer than normal today, but before we do, I just want you to notice one last thing. I want to back up, and I want you to notice the first two verses that Paul started with. Because I think we need to understand them. He said, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Here's what he said. He said, This is what you heard. This is what you received. This is what saves. This is what will keep you saved. And this is what you must live in. Do you hear the word of the Lord this morning? There is no salvation without hearing these truths. Christ died, was buried, rose again, and was seen. You must hear those truths if you would be saved, for it's the only way. He said, I preached it to you. You received it. It is what saved you, and it's what keeps you saved. So there it is. The most important thing. The thing that is of first importance. It was of first importance to the Corinthians. It's of first importance to me. It's of first importance to you. It is the highest in priority of anything you will ever hear. And you may be sitting there this morning and saying, well, that arrogant person, who does he think he is? I don't think I'm anybody. But this is somebody. This is something. And that is the most important couple of verses you will ever I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen. And so now this morning, just as Paul said to them, I have preached it to you, and you have heard it, I can say the same thing to you this morning. I have preached it to you. You have heard it. That message, which is of first importance, and the question now is, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Have you received it? And if not, will you do so today? Will you let those facts sink down into your ears, into your heart? It's the most important of truths. Christ died for our sins, for your sins, for you.